Welcome to the Plant Services Podcast Series, The Hidden Costs of Compressed Air, sponsored by Kaiser Compressors. Each podcast in this four-episode series tackles one of the many facets of compressed air system operation and costing. I'm Tom Welp, the Chief Editor of Plant Services, and today I'm joined by two compressed air experts from Kaiser, Neil Maltreder and Justin Acock, for a discussion on the hidden costs of air quality that can be associated with your compressed air system. Neil is Technical Director for Kaiser Compressors and has conducted and supervised thousands of industrial compressed air studies to help plant teams achieve significant energy savings and operational improvements. And as Kaiser Compressors product engineer for air treatment, Justin is responsible for the technical sales support and education for Kaiser's extensive lines of air treatment products, including filters, dryers, drains, and condensate management. Welcome guys, thanks for being part of this special series. Yeah, thanks for having us, Tom. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back, Tom. Well, I, I can't wait to get started on the air quality discussion. Um, Justin, I can fire a question at you first. Um, let's get right into the topic of standards for air quality. Can you talk to our listeners about some of the common methods that are used to treat compressed air to meet required ISO classes? Yeah, sure, Tom. But I think first we need to define what the ISO classes are for. The classes are for classifying filtration and drying methods with respect to the big three contaminants for compressed air, particulates, water, and oil. It can be very difficult to replicate or meet these ISO classes in the field because drying and filtration equipment are tested to a standard ISO 7183 for dryers and ISO 12500 for filters. And the standard test conditions will not be the same as the conditions in the field. So the challenge the air treatment equipment can see is very different for every installation. You can compare this to installing a system in a pharmaceutical plant versus a cement plant. The cement plant is going to be obviously very dirty and a lot more contaminants than a pharmaceutical plant. You also got to remember the compressor ingests ambient air and the ambient can change depending on the installation of the equipment where it's at. So the ISO classes are just classes, a way to classify and certify equipment. And it's kind of very difficult to guarantee how the equipment will operate in the field to the classes to an exact point. So with that being said, you can have an air treatment system with multiple equipment and try to have the best insurance policy close to the ISO class so you can have the correct quality air and then the best product and whatever you're using with the air. So for example, you know, if you want an ISO class 1.1.1, you would use a high efficiency pre-filter to a desiccant dryer that's capable of reaching a minus 94 degree F dew point, then a particulate and adsorption filter after the dryer to give you the best air quality possible. So, so that would give you the best air quality with the most equipment. So it would be obviously be the most expensive. So if you had less stringent requirements, you would use less equipment or just different equipment. So like a refrigerated dryer instead of a desiccant dryer, and that would definitely be a lot cheaper. So determining your ISO classes can help you choose the correct equipment and reduce your cost. Okay, those are great points. Uh, I'm curious, Neil, do you have specific application examples that you can share with us? Yeah, you know, I mean, Justin gave us some great how-to um, and then we talked really about the standards on how to get to what is, is really required. But most customers see this as a, you know, what's the application? So is this a, a food application, you know, incidental contact? Are we, are we packaging something? Uh, or it could also be, let's say, a pain application where you're very um, concerned with uh, condensate water, oil, et cetera. 
uh, that's getting the line. And that's how you decide, you know, which which type of air treatment you need. Do you do you need a dryer? Um, what kind of dryer is that? Is it a refrigerated dryer, uh, which is nominally 38, 40 degree pressure dew point? Or is it a desiccant dryer, which would be, you know, zero degree um, uh, Fahrenheit pressure dew point or, or lower? Uh, most run, uh, folks run at uh, minus 40 degree pressure dew point um, with those desiccant dryers. And then you'll need the filtration associated with it. So, you know, it it, it really, it runs the gambit on on what's required for each application. And that's the great part about being in this business is, even when you do talk to the same customers, you don't see the same things. So Justin, um, sounds like it's possible to have too little air treatments in your system. So let me ask about the possibility of too much air treatment. Uh, can you have too many dryers or filters? You know, like at some point, does extra treatment do more harm than it does good? Oh, yeah, definitely. You can have too much air treatment. I mean, it would be a problem just for your operating costs and also your initial costs. You know, like if you're just kind of like a general plant, and you only need ISO class four for water content, but you have a desiccant dryer, you're going to have a much higher operating cost as, you know, having a desiccant dryer, you're using your process air to regenerate the, the desiccant bed. And that process air is very expensive to make. So the capital cost and also the capital cost of the desiccant dryer is higher. So you kind of have two facets there, operating costs and your initial costs, which is going to play both into having higher operating costs by having more air treatment. And you don't really need that. And it also plays into uh, pressure drop, too, if you have too many filters in different places when you actually really don't need that many filters to meet your air requirement. You have a higher pressure drop and that pressure drop is going to coincide with a higher energy usage in your compressor. So there's also an issue with oversizing dryers. So if a dryer is oversized and you don't have any energy saving methods, you're missing out on opportunities to save a little bit of money. So for example, if you have a system that only needs 100 SCFM of air, but you have a dryer that's rated for 200 SCFM, you know, after applying all the correction factors and the dryer is non-cycling, then you're going to be using that dryer flat out. It's just going to keep running. But if you had an energy saving dryer, like a cycling dryer, then it would just cycle on and off, you know, depending on the demand. So then you could potentially save up to 50% because if the dryer is rated for 200, but you only need 100 SCFM of air, then you, that's about 50% of energy savings that you could have. And this would also be the same for sizing desiccant dryers and membrane dryers, and then even more so because they use purge air, which is, again, like I said, uh, it's inefficient and costs a lot of money to generate. So sizing your system, sizing your air treatment equipment for the system will give you good uh, money saving benefits. Uh, I absolutely agree. You know, Justin had some really fine points in there. I think, you know, it's it's a hard question to answer because, you know, you do talk to customers who are uh, very conscientious about uh, meeting a specific either pressure dew point or ensuring they don't have any water in the lines. And we do run into customers who, instead of putting all their uh, refrigerated dryers in parallel, um, they might put two large dryers, one in series with the other. And, you know, so like Justin said, you know, if you have um, a hot gas bypass valve dryer, which is running fully, fully loaded all the time, and you don't have any energy saving potential for that dryer, uh, you know, you're, you're really missing the boat in regard to energy savings. And if you put those two in series, well, then now you're spending, you know, 200% of your energy cost and really you're, 
you you could be spending 50% of that you know complete uh, if the dryers uh, you know has an energy saving potential. So you know there's there's things that we always talk about and try to explain to uh, customers uh, for different applications, but it's also a peace of mind because for them it may be you know I have a, a million dollars worth of products out there and I want to make sure that it's going to be clean and dry all the time. There are different ways that we can go about um, uh, ensuring that the air treatment is always uh, providing uh, the correct pressure dew point. Uh, and if there's any alarms, indications, et cetera, that we can shut down different lines uh, from redundancies. So, you know, again, definitely like, like Justin said, CapEx, um, you could be spending more money than you need, especially if you've been, you know, for lack of a better term, burned before where you had a refrigerated dryer in the system and Maybe that refrigerator dryer wasn't sized for summer conditions, and all of a sudden you get water down the line, and the knee-jerk reaction is say, "I'm getting rid of that refrigerator dryer, and I'm putting in a desiccant, and I'm going to make sure that, um, you know, I don't have any moisture, and my production's fine." Well, you know, again, you're the capex, you're spending more money on the desiccant dryer, and then operating costs, you're spending more money on that as well. There are things too, like. Um, uh, maybe you have a paint booth and that's not, you know, what you normally, that's a small portion of what you run. Well, you can have a point of use desiccant dryer for that uh, and then run the rest of the facility on a, a refrigerated dryer. So there are, are different things that we can do uh, for various compressed air systems to um, save energy, uh, save money, and then still build a system that's reliable uh, uh, for the customer uh, for their needs. Well, you both have outlined some of the challenges when it comes to uh, issues of too much or too little air treatment. So, Neil, let me ask you a question about pressure, if I could. Uh, what tips can you share with our listeners about how to tell if their system is running at too high a pressure? So, yeah, I mean, normally speaking, one of our favorite things to do when we walk into a facility is, is to talk to folks uh, not just maybe uh, our contact, which might be the maintenance manager, production manager, plant manager, um, you know, but to talk to the folks that are operating the equipment. Um, you know, what's what's that minimum operating pressure you can run at? And it, it's almost like that telephone game we played as kids. I'm going to tell you one thing, and then let's see what happens down the line if everyone has the same answer. And, and truth be told, it's usually nominally, you know, within a standard deviation, if you would. Uh, of of what you would expect, but it differs. You know, you I may talk to the plant manager. They may say, "Oh, it's 125." Well, you talk to the operator, and he says, "If I go below 83 pounds, I have to scrap everything that I'm working on with this particular machine." And 83 pounds and 25, uh, 125 psi—that's a big difference. Um, so the the higher you run in operating pressure, the more you're going to make your equipment work. Um, so typical air compressor uh, is 80 to 125 PSI operating. And you can buy compressors that have different air ends and so on, and they can run at higher pressures for different applications. But the higher you run, um, the more energy that compressor is going to expend and the closer you're running to its, its uh, utilization rate or service factor. Those compressors should be able to run there, but nonetheless, you're going to be paying more for it. Um, at higher pressures, you will also have higher flows. So every use that's out there, if it's unregulated, is going to use more air if you're running at a higher pressure. So if I was able to run the entire plant at, say, 90 pounds, 
um, I'm going to have a significant savings running at 90 pounds than I would 100. And that's that artificial demand. The interesting thing with, with artificial demand is, is that all your tools, they may seem like, let's say you have an impact. My impact runs better at 120 pounds. Well, it will, but it's not going to run as long as it would if you were running at 90 pounds. So, you know, the longevity of the tools, you're going to have to replace those pieces of equipment uh, faster. So those are some other hidden costs that you might have. Um, the the neat thing that, that you know, you can do these days is uh, if, if you have a master controller, which, you know, has all your pieces of equipment, all your compressors um, on really one pressure setting. So you have a, you know, most people say, oh, it's a glorified pressure gauge. Well, that's true. Um, really, you can see oh, it's 98 pounds right now, 98.3. Oh, you know, it's 97. What's going on? But it gives you an opportunity uh, to drop that pressure one PSI at a time. So what, what we usually tell operators is once that, that master controller is in, start dialing that pressure down one or two PSI um, a week and then see what happens. You know, usually you'll have an operator or somebody say, oh, well, that's too low. And then you know, oh my gosh, you know what? We were running at at 125 pounds before, and now we're running at you know 95. Uh, we're saving, you know, for every two psi reduction, we're saving one percent energy, and that's that's pretty huge. Um, the other thing too is that you know you have you will have a, a pressure drop between the operation or the generation of the compressed air and that point of use, and you know, that's that's an interesting point that that I think uh, most people don't think about is how do I make sure that if I'm operating in the compressor room at 95, that I get that out at the point of use. So uh, that's one other thing that um, we have to take into consideration. And that's that distribution network. OK, well, Justin, if I could talk the next question at you, um, how would compressed air pressure specifically affect air quality? Yeah, Tom. So, you know, compressed air dryers are sized based on uh, pressure and temperature and the filtration is usually sized based only on pressure. So, you know, if your pressure goes up, the capacity of your treatment goes up. So, you know, when plants say they need more pressure and they ramp up their compressor, you know, this leads to their treatment have more capacity. So, yep, you're going to have you're going to have an insurance that your air treatment is going to work well because you're increasing the capacity of the equipment. But as Neil said before, whenever you turn up the press, the pressure, you're going to increase the cost. The rule of thumb is for every two PSI increase, you know, correlates to about a 1% increase in energy cost. So as Neil said earlier, you do need to have the pressure at the lowest possible amount just so you can save some money. You know, and some of your pressure problems could be, could be due to poor distribution, undersized air treatment equipment, or even, you know, lack of maintenance. So in cases of facilities that are using more compressed air than their air treatment is capable of successfully treating, you're going to have contamination in the form of solid moisture or oil, and that can end up at the point of use. So, you know, one way to avoid this is you can install an air main charging valve. This valve operates based on maintaining operating pressure on the compressed air generation side of the system. So this will ensure that you're getting your proper air quality and you will protect the air treatment equipment. So stable pressure at the point of use is also critical. So adding, you know, FRLs to maintain that pressure is also beneficial. Yeah, Neil, your thoughts on Justin's uh, response? Yeah, um, you know, Justin point, Justin points were fantastic. Um, 
you know, when it comes to air quality and, and operating pressure, one thing that, that we do stress is velocity in the piping. Um, when we talk about expanding systems and, you know, maybe we have a 50 horsepower today and now we're adding another 50 horsepower to the system, um, what's that distribution pipe network? Is that distribution pipe going to be able to handle the additional flow without, let's say, considerable pressure drop? And what what ends up happening is most most folks overlook that or aren't aware that that could be a problem. And now we have, let's say, 500 CFM going through uh, a, a, a system that we expected 200 CFM. So the velocities, as Justin mentioned, they could be relatively high. And that means that we don't have enough contact time uh, for air treatment. And it also means that you know, as we get faster in the distribution network um, over 30 feet per second, then we start to see turbulence effect going on. And so normally speaking, when we're talking about drops and points of use, um, as you go faster, you're going to be potentially pushing, if there's any liquid water in the system, which, which it certainly could be if you have high velocities, um, you're pushing that water down to the point of use. So those are things obviously we would like to avoid. Um, so that's what, what we say. And when you design the system, you're looking at 15 feet per second in the compressor room, uh, 30 feet per second in the distribution piping, and 45 feet per second at the point of use. And that, that can really help uh, ensure that you have the air quality that you started with, right? Because we're designing the system, we're making sure that everything works, but that, that piping aspect is, uh, is really important. Okay. Um well, speaking of piping, let's close out today's podcast uh, by considering um, piping further. I read an article recently about how that piping itself can affect the quality of the air. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how that works? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the material type uh, of the piping can make a difference. Um, you know, number one, uh, we're always looking at a leak-free system. You know, when... When we install something, we want to make sure that once it's up and running, pressure tested, holding pressure, that it holds pressure indefinitely. One of the interesting things uh, for me is that over time, um, when we look in a compressor room, uh, we may have uh, a mixture of equipment manufacturers. Um, you know, we, maybe we're adding equipment, like, like we have an expansion in the plant, so we need more compressors or more dryers. Um, and so we may have a, a, miss, a mix match uh, of equipment. And that's fantastic, but we may not be upgrading that system piping. We go into plants and we see piping that may be endemic from, from the startup of the facility. And some of these facilities are, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old. Um, I've seen certainly some receivers that are older than I am, um, which, you know, as long as you're having the inspections done, that that's necessarily fine. But I think the thing that, that we tend to forget is that it's it's typically the low cost um, uh, materials that are being installed, and so you see some black iron, you see some galvanized, and those tend to rust and scale. And so if we have that issue we just talked about, uh, with um, you know velocities not being considered, pressure drops not being considered, um, so you know if you have uh, moisture coming out, that can uh, start to um, degrade the pipe and internally, and then you get rust and scale buildup, and you have significantly more pressure drop. 
uh, which, you know, like Justin and I both said, it's going to increase your overall operating cost. But the biggest things for customers is production. And, you know, now if you, if you use, you know, let's say, call it inferior materials or materials that are going to rust and scale, um, now you're going to have the potential at that point of use. Um, and then you're going to have a higher scrap rate or, or more downtime because now you have um, uh, production equipment that is affected. So that's, that's really, I think, the biggest thing for me. Um, copper, stainless steel, aluminum, uh, those are really the, the best materials to choose uh, for uh, ensuring air quality in your system. Um, and, you know, the other thing, too, is that I mentioned regulated uses versus unregulated uses. Um, you know, having a master controller is a great way to do that, but you can also put in uh, a flow controller to maintain system pressure downstream or really at, at points of use, uh, depending on how big those demands are. Um, and that can also help with maintaining the operating pressure as low as possible um, and, and potentially uh, not affecting this uh, air quality uh, situation that we had in regard to the piping. You know, I think that wraps up today's episode on the hidden cost of compressed air. Let me once again thank both Neil and Justin for being here. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us, Tom. Tom, always a pleasure to talk with you. Under pressure always reminds me of David Bowie. So, uh, you know, I'm getting my, uh, my music on again, but uh, very exciting. Uh, we'll see if we can add that as the fade out music today for today's episode, Neil. <laughs> um, Fantastic. The next and final episode in this series will cover how to reveal and control costs with system monitoring. And if you like this episode, you can listen to the first two podcasts in the series. And those focus on the hidden cost of oversizing your compressed air system and the difference the system location can make to your bottom line. Once again, thanks to our speakers today. Thanks to our sponsor, Kaiser Compressors. And thanks to you for listening.